Hey everybody, welcome to the Fearlessly Authentic Podcast, episodes aimed at presenting truth in a fearlessly authentic way. I'm Jerry, and this is the last message in our series on Joseph. And today we're going to see how Joseph had to decide whether he was going to have negative thinking or positive thinking. He presents some interesting principles on how to have positive thinking. Not the power of positive thinking, but the power of positive biblical thinking. Let's take a look at the text. Almost done with the series on Joseph. Joseph has been promoted to number two man in Egypt. He's also faced his brothers for the first time in over 20 years. He accuses them of being spies. Now, we talked about this last week about payback, that if it was you or I as the prime minister and your rotten ten brothers who sold you as a slave came up begging for food, you might want to have some fun with that, if not punish them, if not imprison them for what you had to go through. But he didn't. He didn't. His heart was broken. But he was concerned to see whether or not their conscience, their seared conscience, had been awakened by God. So he accuses them of his being spies, and he puts them in the dungeon for three days. Originally, he said, you're going to have to send one person back and bring your brother Benjamin back to prove to me that you're not spies. But he changes his mind while they're in prison. He says, I'm going to keep one of you and release the rest of you with your grain. And when you bring Benjamin back, I'll release Simeon to you. So he takes Simeon, he binds him right in front of him, and they get out of town. On the way back to Canaan, they stop to give the animals a little bit of food, and they open up their bag of food and... Lo and behold, there's their money. Now, you would think that these hardened, criminal-type guys would just be like, all right, cool. But they were so afraid of what was going on that they even said this, what is God trying to do to us? And that's where we pick up the story here in chapter 42, actually. We pick up the story here around verse 29. And they came unto Jacob, their father, into the land of Canaan, and told him all that befell unto them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spake roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. We said to him, We are true men, we are no spies. We are twelve brethren, sons of our father. One is not, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the country, said unto us, Hereby shall I know that you are true men. Leave one of your brethren here with me, and take food for the, rent, for the, for the famine of your household, and be gone. And bring your youngest brother unto me. Then shall I know that you are no spies, but that ye are true men. So will I deliver you your brother, and ye shall traffic in the land. It came to pass as they emptied their sacks, that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when both they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. It's interesting that when they found the first pinks of money, they didn't, everybody didn't open up their sack to see if it was there. I don't know if they were just so afraid they just hightailed it home or whatever. When they got home and they were telling Jacob to study, they opened up all their food and they saw all of their money was now back. Now not only were the boys afraid, but Jacob was afraid as well. Now remember, Jacob is the patriarch of this family, the leader. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's panicking. Everybody's panicking. What does the leader say? What does the leader say at this time? What is his wisdom? What does this man of God have to say to reassure his family that God is still on the throne? Look what he says. Verse 36, Jacob, their father, said to them, me, have ye bereaved of my children? Joseph is not. Joseph is dead. And Simeon is not. He's killed him off. 
and ye will take Benjamin away? All these things are against me. Wow. What words of wisdom. You, I can barely call you sons, have bereaved me. Joseph is dead, Simeon's dead, and now you want me to give you Benjamin? I don't think so. See, I want to talk to you about this subject today, negative thinking. Now, before you get kind of crazy and say, Pastor, where are you going crazy? This isn't the power of positive thinking, okay? This isn't Norman Vincent Peale and Robert Schuler and all those smiley face guys down in Texas. Not all those, not, it's not this power of positive thinking. But I want to talk to you about something that's real, and it's negative thinking. We hear a lot about positive and negative thinking today. In fact, when you search on Google for the term positive thinking, it gives you 16,300,000 results. 16,300,000 clicks you can do uh, to talk about positive thinking. Now, that's a lot to say about positive thinking, isn't it? So I wondered, what, what, how many clicks would it have on negative thinking? So I typed in negative thinking, and it gave me 22 million <laughs> clicks for negative thinking. It seems that we're fonder of thinking negatively than we are of thinking positively. But, but I don't want to spend a lot of time giving you a cultural lecture about the power of positive thinking or the way that negative thinking can lead you to depression Rather, I want to talk about a mindset for the disciples of Jesus Christ. A mindset that God would have us to have as disciples of Jesus Christ. A mindset that we should have as disciples of Jesus Christ when circumstances enter into our life. How should we view the circumstances that enter our life? The old song goes, uh, I beg your pardon, I didn't promise you a rose garden. That, that's actually biblically true. God says, I didn't promise you a rose garden. I promise you eternity. I promise you relief from the penalty of sin. And I promised you my Holy Spirit to be with you until we are joined again. But I didn't promise that you wouldn't get cancer. I didn't promise that you wouldn't, fight, uh, uh, you wouldn't lose everything in bankruptcy. I didn't promise that your marriages would be awesome. I didn't promise that your kids would do everything that you said. I didn't even promise you that your kids will turn out okay. I promised you eternity. And I promised my help when you face these circumstances. That's what he's promised. But you and I, Honesty in church, right? You don't want me to lie to you, right? Honesty in church. You and I act pretty negative when circumstances enter into our life. That's, that's usually our go-to thing. Our go-to thing is to act negative. Murphy's Law says if anything can go wrong, it will, right? When you drop the peanut butter, uh, piece, of, piece of peanut butter on your, the bread peanut butter, it always lands what? <laughs> peanut butter down, right? right? Always does. When you wash your car, what happens that day or the next day? It rains, right? It always happens that way. I spent all this time washing my car. The next day it rains. I got water spots all over my car. We sometimes say life doesn't always work out right, which, we, which what we mean this is that life doesn't work out the way I want it to. That's how life doesn't work out the way I want. It doesn't work out our way. And, and when that happens, we've kind of developed three, what I call, there's kind of basic natural tendencies that happen when Murphy's Law kicks in. When we're faced with a circumstance, three things happen. Number, number one, we tend to respond negatively rather than positively. We tend to respond negatively rather than positively. When circumstances begin to turn against us or when life becomes a larger challenge, then we can see our way through. Our immediate reaction is to be negative instead of positive. And that's especially true when we face unexpected changes. We go negative first rather than positive. And unless you're different from most, your first response to unexpected changes is no. No. So we tend to react negatively rather than positively. Secondly, we tend to view problems horizontally rather than vertically. 
We view our problems strictly from a human, human viewpoint, leaving God totally out of it. We leave, God, we leave God out of the picture until our back is against the wall, and then not even then sometimes do we come into God. Thirdly, we resist what is new, especially if it seems too good to be true. Ah, oh, this thing about salvation, this thing about getting saved and the way that you get saved is by simply placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's too good to be true. I've got to do something for that. I've got to, I've got to work it off. I've got to be good. I've got, to, I've got to give money. I've got to do good works. I've got to sign up with the United Way campaign. I've got to go help the homeless. I've got to go, go uh, uh, help an old lady across the street. Or, or I've got to do something to get into heaven. It's too good to be true. So that can't be true. We respond negatively rather than positively when we face circumstances in our life. We resist rather than embrace. We focus on what can't happen rather than what could. We focus on leaving the familiar, stepping into an uncertain situation and running the risk of disappointment. And you know what I find out about these tendencies? They seem to intensify as I grow older. You know, kind of when you're younger, you're kind of like footloose and fancy free and careless and you know just sort of like yeah we can do this we can yeah we can build it you know we can we can it's and everyone's like no you can't no you can't yes we can we can we can do it when you're young you do that as you tend to get older you tend to start to get sort of like i'm not so sure the old legs weren't as what they used to be you know i'm not sure if i can make it and we get real cautious, and our first reaction when circumstances hit our life is to say no. Now, by positive, responding positively, I don't mean a dream world where you, you walk around being gullible and undiscerning and living, uh, but, but instead, but living with your eyes wide open to the possibilities of what God is trying to do in your life. I don't mean pumping up and calling what is wrong right either. I mean, risk, realistic, one person said this, it's, it's, it's positive thinking is realistically seeing God in the crucibles and the casseroles of life. In the hard times, and supposedly casseroles is a positive thing, as long as it's not a tuna casserole. Now, if you like tuna casserole, God bless you. But if you bring it to me and say, Pastor, I just want to bring you this tuna casserole, I will offend you by saying, I'm not eating it. In our story today, we see Jacob as a man of resistance, and reluctance. Not the leader that he should be. Not the patriarch. Not the person that's supposed to be giving wisdom. We see him as a person of resistance and reluctance. He was a man who had trouble walking by faith, though he had been walking with God for now almost 100 years. He had heard about this God for over 100 years, and, but he's, he's a man who always is going to struggle with his walk by faith. You might identify with that. You've been with God for a while or maybe just a short time and you're struggling in your walk of faith to the, to because when circumstances come, you haven't handled it too well and you've kind of responded in a negative way and you, you just kind of think that's just, that's just the way it is. And, and, and instead of giving wisdom and discerning what God is trying to do in your life, you've just sort of said, no, no, he can't do anything. Nope, it's just the way it is. And nope, I'm just doomed to this horrible life that I live. And woe, woe is me. And oh, come death, come death quickly. That's Jacob. Jacob wrestled constantly with suspicious negativism, a horizontal viewpoint, and a closed and resisted mind. As we pick up the story here at the end of 42, Reuben answers his father's wonderful patriarchal encouragement, which basically said, Oh, woe is me! My son is dead! My other son is dead! And now I'm going to be dead! Reuben says, Hey, Kill my two sons. Slay them if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand and I will bring him to thee again. 
And he said, this is Jacob now. And I have this circle here. My son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead. And he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way and the way which ye go, then shall ye bring down my gray hairs with sorrow into the grave. If I lose Benjamin, I will die. Reuben is his son. He's used to this. Reuben's no prince, but he's used to this. All his life since Joseph was born, all he's heard is Joseph, 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 and now Benjamin. And at the time when they're at a struggle and Simeon's life is hanging in the balance, the reluctant Jacob says to this circumstance, if you take my son and I lose him, I will have lost everything because you mean nothing to me, is basically what he's saying. And I will die if he dies. What a horrible parent. Let's just say it. Let's call it what it is. This is not where you find parenting skills in the story of Jacob. But let's look a little bit about his resistance here and just uh, kind of dissect this, and maybe you can identify with it, or maybe you can help someone with this. But the first thing I see with Jacob is that he reacted with suspicious negativism. What do I mean by that? When he learned what happened, he immediately became fearful. Is that what you do? When something happens, do you immediately go to the fear box? One person said fear stands for fear everything always running. Fearing everything always running. Another person said fear is facing everything always rising. You can have a healthy fear. You have a healthy fear, but you face it and you rise. But when life presents you with something, a circumstance, you always shoot to fearful as I'm going to run or I'm going to rise. Jacob ran. Instead of thanking God for protection and provision for his sons as being accused of spies, he was fearful. It says here that when they, in verse 35, that when they saw the bundles, when the father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. That word afraid there in verse 35 is the same word that is, tra- that is used in Genesis when Adam figures out that what they did and the consequences of what they did and hid from God. Same same thing, when he re, it was his reaction after he had sinned and he was hiding from God. And just like the brothers' reaction when they originally found their money in the sacks, Jacob began, began suspicious about all the circumstances instead of trying to ask God, what are you trying to do here? So he reacted with suspicious negativism. Secondly, he reacted with a horizontal viewpoint. He was looking at the situation from a human standpoint. Notice what he says. Joseph is not, or Joseph is dead. Now Simeon is not. Simeon's dead. And, and the Egyptians think we've spies. We've been set up with this money, and now you want Benjamin? If I lose him, I'll die. Totally horizontal viewpoint. I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about how this is going to affect me, and I'm going to make a decision about how this is going to affect me. God, schmod, who cares? I don't care what God's trying to do. But yet God was trying to do something miraculous in this family's life. Jacob, as we said, should have been thankful that his sons were alive. They were accused of being spies. Now they had all the food they needed for a while. They had their money back. All the Egyptian wanted to do was to see if they actually had a brother. That's all he asked. Instead of saying, praise the Lord, God, I don't know what God is doing here, but God has provided us food. He's provided us safety. He's provided us our money back. Let's go back, show him Benjamin, and let's, let's move on with this. But no. He doesn't see it from a vertical standpoint. He just sees it from a horizontal viewpoint. The third thing that he did is something that we all do. He overreacted. Are you an overreactor? 
When, when circumstances hitch your particular family, does the whole family have to go in the bunker waiting for you to recover from your overreaction? That was Jacob. He was supposed to be the patriarch or the spiritual leader of this family. But we see him for what he really is, a negative, closed mind, horizontal thinking man who's pulling the little bit of hair he's got left out of his head. That's what he's doing. He basically says, where's God in all of this? Everyone's against me. I can't believe this is happening. And when Reuben offers his sons as an exchange for making sure that Benjamin returns safe, Jacob goes right back to that whole favoritism thing. Basically telling Reuben, I only have one son left. I don't trust you. Fatalism reigns supreme in Jacob's heart. Now, it's one thing to read about this in Jacob's life and then make judgments about Jacob thinking, well, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't have done that. But let me apply it in a different situation that maybe you can identify with. Would you have trusted God if you'd have been in Jacob's situation? Think about that. Now let me ask you this. Why didn't you trust him last week? Oh, I'd have trusted you. If I was in Jacob's situation, I'd have trusted him. But you didn't trust him in a situation last week. You took things into your own thing. You acted suspiciously negative. You started to have a horizontal viewpoint and you overreacted. But yet you would have done better than Jacob, right? Wrong. We tend to all be like Jacob. What was it that kept you from seeking God's hand in a matter that you couldn't handle last month? Call to mind your most recent test that God has put you through. Did you rest calmly in him? Or did you push the panic button out of fear? Beep, 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 beep. All of these things cause us to panic, and it's not something new to us. We've, we, we've, we've all formed habits in our life that has basically left God out of the picture. At a time when Jacob needed to step up to the plate and give his family some spiritual direction, some confident leadership, and reassure his family of God's love and God's plan, he reacts with suspicion, paranoia, negativism, and pride, and just basically says, nope, Benjamin's not going, Simeon's on his own, you guys go back to what you're doing. The interesting thing is God's going to get his way. God's going to get his way, but it's, not, but it's a whole lot more painful when we fight him. Notice not only Jacob's uh, resistance, but look at Jacob's reluctance here in chapter 43. So they end the story there in chapter 42 with, well, nobody's going back to Egypt. Take the food, pass it out. We're not going to talk about this again. God's like, all right, I'll wait. You know, God's got all the time in the world, you know, because he created time. So he has all the time in the world. Well, I'll just wait God out. Good luck with that. I'll just wait till God changes his mind. God's not in the business of changing his mind. He's in the business of changing your mind. So it goes on here. And the famine was sore in the land. It came to pass when they had eaten up the corn which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. Now, what is wrong with Jacob? Right? Is he so absent-minded? They run out of food, and he calls the brothers again and says, go down and get some more food. And they're like, I can't believe he's asking. What is wrong with Dad? I think he's had, you know, too much time out there on the backside. I think he's lost his mind. Judah says, The man did Solomon protest unto us, saying, You shall not see my face except your brother be with you. If thou wilt send our brother with us, we will go down and buy thee food. But if thou wilt not send him, we will not go down. For the man sent us, ye shall not see my face except your brother be with, us, be with you. Okay, Judah, as we've looked at it, another particular message, we took a whole time to talk about Judah. Judah is coming around from his horrible beginning. 
Okay? Judah's coming around. Judah has a great ending in this story. Judah has a horrible beginning, horrible middle, but a great ending. And if I had to pick what I'd want to have, I'd want a great ending versus having a great beginning. I don't want a great beginning and then a horrible ending. If I, if I got to pick one, I'll pick the great ending. And Judah has one. Judah has one. At the end, you're going to see that when Jacob is handing out the blessings, he moves the firstborn privilege all the way down to Judah. And it's through Judah Jesus Christ comes to us. We're glad you clicked on this podcast today, and we hope that you'll come back and listen to part two of Negative Thinking. If you were encouraged by what you heard today, we hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast and maybe even share a link to this podcast on your social media so that other people can find out what's going on here with Fearlessly Authentic. Again, thanks for clicking today. We hope to see you next time here on Fearlessly Authentic.